in essence, what we believe wholeheartedly is that we really need Jesus. And so grateful for what he has done, and that's why we gather together. I, I don't know exactly what brought you here this morning, um, but the good news is I have good news to tell you. And so if you have your Bibles, I would love for you to open them to Romans chapter 6. We are in the middle of a, of a special series. Um, for those of you that are around here usually, you know that we're in like a 12-year journey through the Gospel of Matthew. Um, and, and honestly, there, is, there are rumors that we may be done uh, in August. So I'm kind of excited about that. Not because I want to be, I want to be, I want Matthew out. Not truly, not because of that. Um, I am looking forward to another book, to be honest with you. Um, and interestingly enough, like in a few weeks when we come back, we're going to pick up Matthew's gospel during those final weeks of Jesus's life again. And so we're going to be able to kind of slow this down. But we're in the middle of a three-part series, the gospel of God concerning his son. And last week, and I know this sounds strange, like you almost, you have, I, I would argue, you have to be a Christian to get some of this language. Last week, we celebrated the death of Jesus. That, that's, that's weird, but we do that. Must be something special about his death. We'll talk about that. Today, we are going to celebrate the good news about his resurrection, right? That's why we say, happy Easter, Happy Easter. That's why we say that, right? Um, the Lord is risen. And everybody says what? The Lord is risen indeed, right? We, we do that. That's been a, a, a tradition way, way back into church history. Why? Because it seems so natural for us to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Next week, we're going to come back. I'd love to have you here. And we're going to talk about the good news. That's what the word gospel means. The good news of God concerning the Son, that's Jesus, in terms of his, what we're, gonna, what we're calling his enthronement, we usually know it as his ascension, it's one of those often overlooked aspects of the good, of the good news of Jesus. But today we're on the resurrection. Um, we're celebrating the fact that even though he died, he was raised again. And so where do we get this phrase from? The gospel of God. The gospel, most of us know about the gospel of Jesus. We hear about the good news of the gospel or the good news. Well, again, the gospel means good news. But in Romans chapter 1, the apostle Paul sets out this very interesting phrase which focuses our mind on what God is ultimately about, his incredible plan for us that brings glory to him. And so in Romans chapter one, we're just gonna read verses one through three again. This is how the apostle Paul describes it. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Set apart for the gospel of God. That Paul's life begins to take focus and direction and meaning and purpose based all around the good news of the gospel of God, the good news of God. Now, this is why I love to ask the question, God who? Because as we, we know, as you might know, that the Bible describes God coming and, and existing in, 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 in uh, oh boy, this is where you get into heresy real quickly. God exists in three persons. Let me just, I'm going to go back to what I know. God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Have you heard this? So which one holds on to the gospel of God? Which one, which one is God? Who, who is involved in this good news? And the answer is what? Yes. It's a great answer. 
You need to hold on to it. You need to have a robust theology that understands the fullness of how God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit work in complete unison, in perfect harmony. That the Father sends the Son and the Son joyfully obeys the Father. That the Spirit empowers the Son to accomplish this purpose. Like all of this fits beautifully together so that the Apostle Paul says, I was set apart for the gospel, the good news of God. Now, did this just appear out of nowhere? No, look at how he continues on. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. This is not a plan B. This is not an alternate executed option. This is something that began in the very beginning. God had a plan for us. And it's good for us to remember that. And then lastly, that phrase, what is the gospel of God? We can so easily get just confused and, well, it's about the good news that we get to go to heaven. That's what it's about. It's about, it's about heaven. And it's really not about heaven. You know what the gospel is about? Jesus. It's about Jesus. Concerning, Paul says what? Concerning his son. And therefore we find our life and our meaning and our purpose. Not in the hope of heaven. Not even in the resurrection. Generically. But it's the resurrection of Jesus. It's in the ministry of Jesus. It's in the death of Jesus. It's in the enthronement of Jesus. Um, We think Jesus is a big deal around here. And we love to partner with other people who think Jesus is a really big deal. Like there's the understatement of the day. So that somehow, um, by the power of the Spirit, we can make much of him so that other people who don't know this good news might hear this good news, see us living out the good news, and join in. This lifelong celebration of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for God's glory and for our benefit and joy. That's what it's all about. So the two questions that I want to ask us this morning, last week I had three, but I knew we'd have three services today, so I needed to kind of, you know, shrink the time a little bit. Okay, don't get too excited. It goes almost the full length. But the two questions I want to kind of focus our mind around both have to do with this issue of good news because this is what happens is, is that we hear it so much. We hear it so much that in the end it's kind of like happy Easter, happy Easter, happy Easter, happy Easter. And, and we miss the significance of it. Um, the Muslims have Ramadan, the Jews have Hanukkah, and as Christians we celebrate, we kind of focus around what? It's not Christmas. Yeah, but look at all the money we spend and look at all the attention and look at how long it takes. Like Christmas starts somewhere after like June and ends sometime mid-January, at least according to some of my buddies in terms of like the the lights on their house, uh, January or February. Like that's how long the Christmas season is. And sometimes that can be deceiving. The Bible makes much out of the incarnation. That's Jesus putting on human flesh, but it makes so much more, such a bigger deal. It's Easter that's the big deal for Christians. We celebrate weekly the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We focus on that, not the incarnation. Jesus didn't say, as as often as you meet together, you need to remember that I came as a baby. He doesn't say, as often as you gather together, what you really need to remember is that I was an amazing teacher. What you really need to remember is I was there caring for those people in need. You need to be compassionate like me. Now, what does he say? 
I want you to eat and drink this meal commemorating the fact that I died. I gave my body for you. And I want you to like eat and drink of this. I want you to celebrate this. What, your death? And the answer is yes. So the first question I wanna ask and then answer is how is Jesus's death good news? How is it good news? Like let's just, instead of just, well I've always heard it's good news, I want us to think about like how is that good news? Because whenever I think about anybody else, whenever I think about the good news that Jesus Christ died for me, it kind of leaves a little bit of a, oh did I do that? Like did I cause that? Was that my fault? Was that my bad? And it leaves like a, a little bit of a, maybe if I had tried harder, he wouldn't have to have died for me. Or if we all had tried harder, maybe he wouldn't have had to have. And, and, and in the end, what I love about the gospel is that in no way does Jesus sit there and want to heap guilt upon us. Look at what I did. I hope you're happy. He doesn't do that, does he? He's, look at what I did and how much I love you. Look at what I did and how much I came to, to fulfill the Father's plan of your salvation. Look at what I've done. Look at the full extent of my love that I would give myself to you. And instead of making you feel bad, what he desires so much is that you accept it and are grateful. That's God's plan for you. So how is the gospel good news? Romans 6 verses 1 through 4 begins to break that open to us. This is how the apostle Paul says it. What shall we say then? He's continuing on um, what's happening at the end of chapter five and all that Jesus Christ has done and the grace that so freely comes from his death. What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? It's in essence, hey, if, if me sinning allows God to forgive me and God loves to forgive me, well, then I'm willing to help him on my end. Like, I'll keep on sinning. God will keep forgiving. I like this plan. And the apostle Paul says, like, that's a, that's a very broken way of thinking. And notice where he ties it. Verse two, by no means would we continue to sin so that grace might abound. How can we who died to sin still live in it? That's a good question, Paul. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ's death were baptized, sorry, were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Paul is going to use in Romans 6, it's one, of the, um, it's one of the clearest analogies and descriptions of why we as a church, and by that I literally mean not just Sunnybrook, but the church, why we love so much the, uh, some call it a sacrament or an ordinance or the practice of baptism or immersion. The Apostle Paul is, is describing it not as an argument, well, I think you need to be baptized. The church loves to argue about it. Paul just seems to assume it, doesn't he? He says, don't you realize that those of you who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Something happened in there. You joined him in there. Like your life was, was given up in there, your death in him. They connected there and you died along with him right there in the water. But he doesn't end there. Verse four. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that. So there was a purpose to all of that. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, this is where the resurrection has some power, but in the same way that Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, that we too might walk in newness of life. First of all, the Bible doesn't like dividing things up into these really smooth categories. It doesn't. It so doesn't want you to step too far away from the death of Jesus 
into the resurrection of Jesus without remembering, oh, that's right, he died for me. Oh, that's right, he was also raised. But don't forget that in order to have a resurrection, you need a death. This is one of the problems that we go through our week, right? Like last week, you go through your week. It's Monday and you're kind of excited. Uh, maybe, maybe you have your Friday off, good Friday off, right? And so you're kind of excited about that. So any of you just, just go through last week for the most part? Maybe on Friday you woke up and thought, oh, that's right, it's good Friday. I wonder if you might go to a, a service here in town or something like that. But for the most part, was it not a pretty normal week for you? Did you have a normal Friday? For the most part, I did. I spent a little more time thinking about, wow, this is the day that I remember that Jesus died for me. And then I went on about my day. And, and one of the things that concerns me, one of the reasons why we kind of change up our, our preaching order here is because it's just hard to get the full embrace of the good news on Resurrection Easter Sunday when you haven't deal with the fact that a dead Jesus was the one who was raised. Like it's, it's not some kind of a, of a, I know some churches like to do this, they, they spiritualize the idea of resurrection. Um, they wanna try to find an analogy to what the resurrection is life that's motivational and inspiring. And so they maybe use analogies that they draw descriptions like, it's, it's like a, a downtown that has grown old and dilapidated. And it's one of those situations where all of a sudden the people come together and they all just chip in and they begin to paint buildings and new money comes in and all of a sudden this downtown is revitalized again. It's kind of like that new life. Yeah, doesn't, doesn't do it for you? Okay, um, you know what it's like? It, it's like? It's like in the fall when the, the leaves begin to fall off the trees and they kind of fall down and the trees look naked and bare and the cold wind... Everything just seems dead, but then the springs come. And all of a sudden, the trees begin to sprout new life. It's kind of like that. Isn't that inspiring? Uh, not so much. Like, there's such a danger. And sadly enough, so many churches across America and around the world to try to spiritualize this issue of resurrection. But what the Bible says is rather simple. Jesus Christ, who was God, was killed. And that's good news to us. That is good news. And the fact that God raised him up from the dead is proof that God accepted the sacrifice that Jesus gave. Um, th this is a really key, key point here. Why is it that we celebrate? Why, why is it that we look at the death of Jesus and then the resurrection and we see this good news kind of hanging between the two? How many of you have wondered, um, has God really forgiven me? Anybody else wondered that? How do you know? Like, how do you know God forgave you? I, I know, and it's interesting enough, the Bible nowhere says, um, promise, I promise you that, that God has forgiven you St. Peter. Um, uh, you can trust me. I'm an apostle. My name is Paul. And I know that God has forgiven you. Trust me, St. Paul. No, doesn't do that. The Bible actually does give something that you and I can place our hope in. And that is this. That Jesus Christ, in fact, died and was raised again. That is where we begin to see this in its fullest form, 
the good news. When you wonder, how can God forgive me? Don't dwell on your sin. Don't dwell on your struggle. Don't dwell on your failure. Dwell on the fact that God accepted Jesus' death as your death, as your penalty. But how do I know he did that? And the answer is, he raised him from the dead. And that is the hope that you and I have. That is the peace that you and I find right there in that moment where we find good news in Jesus Christ's death as well as good news in his resurrection. So why is Jesus' resurrection such good, good news to us? Well, one of the most normal ways in which you and I begin to gravitate towards is that when we hear the word resurrection, we usually think, well, you know, it's, it's gonna be good to know that when I die, I don't stay dead or I don't go to hell. Like, I kind of like the fact that, G, that God raised Jesus from the dead because then I can dwell on the fact that when I die, I'll be able to go to heaven with him. And that's what we focus on. We hear the word resurrection, we think about our death and then our resurrection, and we go, hey, that's great, I'll take some of that. And so we go through life reflecting on Jesus' Christ's resurrection, and we fast forward our own life to our own. But this big gap here, that can be a bit of a problem. The Apostle Paul clearly loves to anticipate the coming of Jesus Christ. And life with him forever. First Thessalonians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says this. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Essentially what he's pointing out here is that what we see in the gospel or in the good news is that there is going to come a day when you and I will have life ever after. We will have heaven. We will have presence with God. We will have presence with our loved ones who've died, who have put their faith in God through Jesus Christ. And we long for that day. But what do we do in the in-between time? And this is what causes, I think, a lot of people to wonder, um, what is faith good for? What is faith good for? Some people have actually uh, postulated that, yeah, the Christian life is, is basically a, a life that is designed to make ourselves, to give ourselves coping mechanisms to deal with that huge gap, the gap between our birth and our death. We need something to either keep us busy or to keep us going, and so what we stick in there is faith, almost like a faith in faith. Have you ever heard anybody say something like this? That even if the Christian doctrine or our great Christian truths about the meaning behind the death of Christ or the meaning behind the resurrection of Jesus, even if those aren't true, how many of you have heard this? Even if that's not true, we still have the best life out there. Anybody heard that? Raise your hand if you've heard that. Okay, sadly as a preacher, I've said that. Let me tell you what the Bible says. That's not true. That's not true. We don't have faith in faith. That we're not, I'm not trying to give you some things to hold on to so that you can make it through this life and then enjoy something in the next life even if it's not there. No, the Apostle Paul sees power in this life because it is true. The Apostle Paul sees power in this life by the Holy Spirit because Jesus Christ was in fact raised from the dead. 
One of the most famous chapters in the Bible that talks about the resurrection is 1 Corinthians 15. And I want you to turn there for a moment to take a look at how the Apostle Paul says that our faith isn't just wishful thinking. It's not just something that is designed to, um, to kind of carry us over. I hear people describe, well, you know, at least they had faith. You know, I, I know that we have all different expressions, but at least they're a faithful person. And in the end, you know, some have some faith and some have another, but the one thing we all share in common is faith in something. Well, the Bible doesn't really describe faith and just a generic faith in that way as a noble thing. No, it's what you put your faith in that separates everyone. And what we are celebrating today is the fact that we have put our faith in Jesus Christ who died for us. And God proved that that faith wasn't in vain because he raised him from the dead. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Literally, it's powerless. This idea of, man, it's my faith that's getting me through, it's my faith that's getting me through. If, if, if the object of what your faith is in has no power or does not exist, then it's, it's powerless. Like it truly is only wishful thinking. It's like the apostle Paul knows of such a faith that really doesn't have an object worth our devotion or hope or dedication. And the apostle says, if, if Jesus Christ was in fact not raised from the dead, your faith is powerless. Look at this. And you are still in your sins. Verse 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are perished or have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, to kind of make it through, disconnected from a real source, but man, more of a sociological, psychological exercise that you and I are playing. The Apostle Paul says, if that is the case, then we are of all people most to be pitied. He doesn't say, yeah, but if you look at our lives, it really is the best one out there. No, the Apostle Paul says, it's the best one out there because it's connected to a real source. A real source of power and a real source of strength. And you want to know how we know? Because the one that we are connected to did not stay in the grave. But he was raised again. And that kind of life-giving power never allows us to sit in limbo with our life somewhat on pause. Now, when I say that, it's not like we're not still living our lives. I mean, the real truth is, is that you and I may have gone through some kind of experience where we recognize the need for Jesus, or at least a good deal when we hear one, so we accept Jesus, knowing that we now have at least some kind of a plan when we die, but until we get there, let's have our best life now. Let's continue to go on and, and do the best that we can and continue to go on and, and try to make the most out of this life. And hear me, I mean, I'm more than glad to go to church occasionally. I'm more than glad to give occasionally. I'm more than glad to try to be a nice person. This is not the way the Bible describes a life connected with Jesus Christ in baptism. The life connected in baptism 
um, described in the Bible, if I, if I can be honest, honest with you, when I read it and describe it, it makes me wonder if something is broken because it speaks in very grandiose terms. It speaks very strongly about a life that is radical and new and different. And how many of us, if we're going to be honest, go, yeah, I don't know if I see that much of a change. Like something is broken. Here's how the Apostle Paul says it. So, by the way, this is the life that the resurrection provides to us through the Holy Spirit when we are joined with Christ. Paul says, continuing in Romans 6, Verse five, listen to this life, current life now, not heaven, current life now. For if we have been united with him in his death, like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Again, so when, when, okay, when, is, this, when is this happening? When we say a resurrection like his, is that like when we die? And the answer is yes. And that is when we die in baptism and the apostle Paul says yes. He is using an analogy. There is something that happens to lost people when they recognize their need for Jesus and give their life completely over to him that changes their lives, not after they're dead, but when they surrender their lives to him now. The Apostle Paul continues to speak rather strongly when he says, we know, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin, our body of sin, like our propensity towards sin, our selfishness and our greed, all of those things, our body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Like one of the reasons why I gave my life to Christ was that it, in all of its messiness and brokenness, would be dead. Verse seven, for one who has died, okay, not physical death, but one who has died, has given their life, who's been buried with Christ, one who has surrendered their life in Christ, in baptism, Paul says, has been set Free from sin. Does that sound like exaggeration or overstatement to you? The Apostle Paul goes on. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he now lives for God. So he died so that you and I could live. And if it is true that he died and God raised him up, then now all of a sudden you and I now share in what he has already accomplished, not just peace with God now, and not just this wishful thinking or this hopeful thinking of an afterlife or a future life with God. But Paul describes a very present and personal, a very intimate power that resonates inside you and I now. Verse 11, so you and I must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I read that. 
And I just have to admit, I don't know if that describes me all the time. Does that describe you? Dead to sin and alive to God. Now living in the power of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So that you, in your body, now, not later, but now, are no longer a slave to sin and to the regular uh, brokenness and struggles that we have, but because you've given your life to Christ, been united with him in baptism, you now are living in a fundamentally different direction and plane. Anybody go, yeah, I don't know if that's what happened to me. This is where it just gets hard. If I can just kind of step forward and kind of put my own life on the altar. What happens to me is I read a text like that and the Apostle Paul means what he says. That there's something that happens since the resurrection is real and God's plan is real and purposeful and true. There is something that happens when I give my life by faith to Christ. There is something when I accept his death. There is something that happens in that moment when I'm united with him in Romans 6 in baptism where the Holy Spirit comes upon me and my life is different. That's what Romans 6 says. But when I'm just living my life, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, man, it's a long week, Saturday, I don't know if I feel it all the time. I don't know if I'm like skipping through my week. I am alive to Jesus and dead to sin. And then I begin to wonder, did Paul get that right? It's not just Romans 6. Paul continues it in Romans 7. Paul continues it in Romans 8. Paul is on a crash course for those people who believe that once you give your life to Jesus Christ, it's pretty much business as usual. You keep going along with all the same problems, all the same same temptations, all the same failures, but when you die, everything will get better. That's just not what the scriptures teach. And I find myself reading the scriptures and reading in Romans 8, life in the spirit. I'm going, wow, that's what the Christian life is supposed to be like. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Man, it's a long week. Friday, Saturday. Anybody else kind of trust maybe your experiences more than you do? Romans 6, 7, and 8. Anybody else? Yeah, I think, I think Paul meant something different there. I don't know how he could mean that, that really we're dead to sin and alive to God because that's not what I'm experiencing. I kind of believed that for a long time. Maybe I should just kind of go with my instinct and not with what the scriptures teach. Like, I don't know, maybe he's describing like certain people, like really spiritual people, but I don't know if that's gonna be me. I spent all of my high school, we kind of sat on that kind of that back area over there. And, and we kind of sat back there. We didn't have cell phones that we could text with. We had to use the communication cards to communicate with each other. <laughs> A lot of communication going on. And so we spent our time back there. Occasionally I'd be listening to the preacher. 
And he'd be talking about holiness and a righteous God, and he'd be describing this life that I should be living. And uh, um, occasionally, and actually pretty regularly, I would be deeply convicted of my sin and my brokenness. And I would sit there and at times, like, um, I didn't want to do it in front of my friends, but almost like brought to tears. Kind of a mixture of scared and embarrassed and disappointed. Anybody have any idea what I'm talking about? And I just resigned myself that, uh, you know, my problem is I'm just not committed enough. Kind of like at school. I just need to study more. I just need to work harder at it. And I think I can do this. You know what? I can do this. Starting tomorrow, things will be different. Kind of come up with a plan. Avoid these friends. Avoid these activities. It just seemed like, oh, it just seemed like the week wasn't so long and I was back in that chair feeling that same conviction. And and what happened was um, the amazing difference between the life-giving spirit through the power of the resurrection of the Son of God. It became dull. I just began to notice that the sermon needed to be a little more powerful, kind of like a drug, and my sin needed to be a little more intense in order to get the same, like a theological high. And my convictions were kind of getting spaced out longer and longer. And I found myself more confused and doubting Romans 6, 7, and 8 and, and kind of living more. in. you know what? I guess, I guess that's what eternity is for. We'll figure it out there. But something kept haunting me. And I now believe that that something was the Holy Spirit. Why, it would say to me, not verbally for those of you wondering, not that I wish it wasn't, but it wasn't. Um, Why do you believe your own experiences and doubt what I've said to you in my word? Like, Why do you believe the lie about your own brokenness and why do you believe your own effort and your own work and that's where the problem lies? Why do you keep going back to that? And it was because I failed to understand and accept and live in this text from Romans 6. That in my baptism when I was 12 years old and I had no idea what I was doing. But hey, nine years later I got married and I had no idea what I was doing. Then five years after that we decided to have a son. We had no idea what we were doing. When I was 12 years old, I, I know what I was doing. Didn't know all of it, but I knew what I was doing. I was giving my life to Jesus Christ. And God gave me at that moment the power of the Holy Spirit that would convict me, as John 16 says, of sin and righteousness and the judgment to come. And a few years ago, I began to recognize what was broken. I began to, I began to gravitate more towards the Bible, weirdly enough, and less to my own convictions. I began to realize that the truth of the Scripture is, is, the, is, the, is the way that things not just should be, but the way that they are. 
And instead of being someone who is living from these experiences and these struggles, I'm beginning to recognize, you know, there really is power in the Spirit. Do you know that? And I know you're wondering, has Jim gone charismatic? If by that you mean, am I recognizing more and more the power of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit by the grace of God? The answer is yes. Because that's what Romans 6 is all about. And I'm not asking you to join some amazing spiritual plane that I have found. I'm asking you to lean into the scriptures as Paul describes in Romans 6 and Romans 7 and Romans 8 and Galatians 5 and Ephesians 2 and Colossians 2 and say, listen, something is broken here and we gotta give up our pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We gotta give up on a strength. We gotta give up on just resigning ourselves to doing our best and then it'll all get figured out in heaven. No. There is a power that resides in you now to say no to sin. Truth is, we just don't talk about it, do we? No, we gave up that whole reminding one another of the power that lives in us. Because I think you're making me feel guilty about that, Jim, because I'm really struggling with something. And now the most common and popular thing for us to do is to sit there and to mutually affirm one another in our brokenness. Instead of what the Bible teaches, which is this, let's confess our brokenness. Let's confess our sins. Let's not play games. Let's be real and honest and open and vulnerable. Let's share our brokenness without any kind of shame. Because if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of all unrighteousness. I'm not saying pretend. But instead of you and I just creating accountability groups, have you done this? Let's create accountability groups and I'll tell you about the five things I blew this week and you tell me about the eight things you screwed up this week and then we'll just tell each other, well, you gotta try harder and then we'll meet again next Thursday. Uh, I'm not against accountability groups. Just devoid of the power of the spirit, you might as well write Dear Abby. By the way, she's dead. Do you realize like what God designed for us in our marriages is for us to lean in the power of the Holy Spirit and not give up on those relationships? Like do you understand that God has given us the power of the Holy Spirit? And you and I may continue to struggle, but we do not struggle as people without power, without strength. And more and more, I'm going to ask you to even encourage me to remind you that you can say no to sin. I'm not asking you to do this by your own strength or by your own ability, but the spirit that lives in you. One of my favorite questions to ask in, in the most difficult times, and I'm not trying to make light of the most difficult times, but if I just stop and reflect on those moments where I'm tempted to live in the sinful, natural, selfish self, I have to ask myself, do I need the Spirit to do this? Do I need the Spirit to not go? Like, I know the Spirit is compelling me to go. I know, across the street or around the world, it doesn't matter. The Spirit is compelling me to go and to live outside of myself and to share my faith or to, to share of my life that he has blessed me with. And I'll tell you, I never need the Spirit to just not go. I, I really don't need the Spirit 
to walk away from my marriage. I don't need the spirit to forgive a brother or sister in Christ. I I don't need the spirit to abandon the community that Jesus Christ has called me to live. No, I can actually live selfishly for myself without the spirit. Actually, the spirit gets in the way. But when I recognize the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead in me, it compels me, it compels me to go. It compels me to live in community when it is stretching me beyond anything I could have ever imagined. Only the power of the Holy Spirit causes me to lean into this text, to grow in my understanding of who God is and his plan in this messed up world so that I can trust him and grow in obedience. Only the Spirit can do that. My question for you this Easter morning is, do you have any idea what I'm talking about? As I describe this to you, does it sound like wishful thinking? Does it sound like a a kind of like an alternative life? Like, I don't have that. Romans 6 teaches... Like he was raised, then that same power lives in you. And for those of you that doubt that or wonder that, I'm here to tell you this morning, it's true. And you want to know how I know? Because God raised Jesus from the dead. Let's pray. And so God, I thank you. God, as we are about to gather around the table this morning, I thank you for the opportunity that we are are going to have to celebrate the good news, not just of Jesus' death, but his resurrection. And so I pray, Father, that with um, one heart and one mind, um, we can unite around that. Father, forgive us for trusting our own broken and messed up experiences. Forgive me for trusting my own brokenness in your life-giving word. And Father, I pray that we truly would encourage one another, that we would find incredible peace confessing our sins to one another, and that we would be the church that you've called us to be. Thank you, God, for the power of the Holy Spirit that lives in those of us who believe. It's in Jesus' name we humbly pray, amen. This time I'm gonna ask our servers to head back. And we are going to spend our final moments this morning reflecting on on what Jesus Christ has done. And it's good for us. If you are a a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, then we want to encourage you to take the bread and the cup and to hold on to that. And we will be sharing in that time together. Um, This really is an opportunity for us. The Bible says a number of things about this particular time. It says that when we do this... (laughs) We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And I know that sounds absolutely strange. If you think about it at funeral times, what people usually do is they reflect back. Guys, when you come in, if you want to already start serving, that'll be great. At funeral times, what we do is we we celebrate the person's, um, celebrate their life, don't we? We don't spend all of our time describing those last few moments before they died. 
No, we, we look back on Eric's life and we say, remember Eric? He was such a good guy. He was such a nice guy. Remember Eric? Remember Eric the teacher? Remember Eric the neighbor? Remember Eric the son? Remember that? Remember Eric? And that's what we spend our time doing. We say we're going to celebrate their life. But that's not what we do here. Like around the Lord's table, what you and I do is we don't look back and go, man, wasn't Jesus a good teacher? Wasn't he so compassionate? Like, I mean, that last part of his life, that was kind of rough. But let's not focus on that. Let's focus on all the happy days of Jesus' life. No, when we die, we try to look back. But because Jesus' life was so different and so significant and so purposeful, what we do is we hold the bread and the cup, is we remember that he died on the cross for us. We remember he gave his life, not just as an example, but he gave his life as something that you and I desperately needed. And that is why we celebrate the death and the resurrection of Jesus. say things like happy Easter as we take his body represented by this bread and we eat it together and we take the cup representing his blood shed for us and we drink it God we thank you for Jesus for good news that we have that revolves all around him we see in his resurrection, in his life, new life. Amen. In Revelation 1, the Apostle John has this encounter with the risen Jesus. And he sees Jesus in all of his glory. He says that Jesus' hair is this glowing white and his eyes are like flames and his feet are like burnished bronze and when he speaks that his voice is like roaring waters. 
This, this picture is so overwhelming to John that he falls down. He says, I fell down at his feet as though dead. And then Jesus reaches down with his hand and he places it on John's shoulder. And he says this, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Now, if the whole point of the gospel is Jesus dying and coming back to life so I can go to heaven one day, then all these words really are are comforting thoughts for my deathbed soothing ideas to be spoken at my funeral. But as Jim has said, I think that they're more than that. See, the book of Revelation is written to this group of churches that is being forced at that time to choose between two kingdoms. The kingdom of Rome, which ruled the entire known world and demanded absolute allegiance from its subjects, even in the areas of religion. Or the kingdom of God, which had been ushered in by the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And I think that Jesus shows up at the beginning of this book here to say to the people, listen, it may look like Rome has all the power at times. It may look like Rome is the safe bet, but know this, that of these two kingdoms, only one of them has a ruler who holds the keys to death in Hades. Only one kingdom has a king who has faced death and overcome it, has a king who laid down his life for his people and then took it up again. So choose wisely. You and I are not that different from those churches. The story of every one of our lives is that we must choose which kingdom we are going to give our ultimate allegiance to kingdoms of the world, be it an actual physical kingdom or some ideology that you buy into or even your own little personal kingdom that you're going to build your life around, or the kingdom of God. And Easter is here to remind us of this truth. Of all the kingdoms you may choose, there is only one whose ruler conquers death. And so our prayer for you this morning is this. May you choose wisely. May God open your eyes to see Jesus as he truly is, the resurrected Lord. And may you walk in the obedience that the resurrection demands and in the power that the resurrection gives. We love you guys. Happy Easter. There will be men and women down front who would love to talk to any of you who, who want to continue this conversation or pray with you, the rest of you are dismissed.